Alrighty, let's get started. Let's uh, let's start with prayer. You can, uh, if you're comfortable with it, you can hold hands with the person next to you. We'll pray. All the single people, I hope you picked your seat wisely tonight. Lord Jesus, bless us, be gracious to us, cause your face to shine upon us tonight. Lord, we ask that you implant your word powerfully within our hearts, that it will bear much fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. God, we want to be uh, eyes to see and ears to hear you tonight. So we ask that you will speak and that we will respond in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, open them to the book of Jude. Hey, Jude, don't be afraid. If you found her, go and get her. We will, uh, we'll get there in a second. So uh, we talked last week, last few weeks, kind of been on this progression. I feel like I'm preaching these five-week-long messages, so hope you're enjoying them because it's taking a lot of time. I'm like, wow, I'm like on the same topic. But I've been talking about living a life of purity and power, proclamation and demonstration. This is built upon uh, dependence. Last week was the how of dependence, living out of the voice of God. Now I'm going to talk about specifically purity and power. So tonight I'm going to talk and try to kind of forecast how the Lord speaks uh, in the realm of purity and how he's deepening you and your walk, how he will deepen us, the tools he uses to sanctify us. Uh, This is a term that has a lot of meanings probably to a lot of people. Uh, and I'm hoping to define and really put a uh, desire and cast vision for what it means to be holy as the Lord is holy. He wants to sanctify us, purify us, and make us look like his son in every aspect. So, does that sound good? All right. So, I'm just going to back up a little bit and kind of give like an overhead view and then really dive right in. So, uh, we, there's a mustard seed kingdom. We say that the kingdom is an inside, outside, upside down kingdom. And the small things become big things. And the backward things, the, you go da- up, down to go up, you die to live. Right? It's this paradoxical kingdom. And there's this uh, story where Jesus talks about the mustard seed. It's the smallest of seeds, but it becomes the largest of plants in the garden. Are you familiar with this? All right, that's good. So we are in a mustard seed kingdom where a lot of things that become very large and powerful start very small. And uh, most of our Christian journeys, uh, we would point back to, you know, you would say, I'm saved, right? Not everybody would say that they're saved, and everyone's on a journey of what that means. But for a lot of people, like a typical, you know, definition of a born-again Christian is someone that's saved. I asked Jesus to come into my heart, right? Okay. <laughs> Glad you're saved. Uh, anyways, right? We have this experience of grace that we've come in modern Protestant evangelical Christianity to call salvation, right? It's this experience of grace where we get saved, we get born again, right? And this is an extremely powerful miracle. This is, in some ways, the greatest of miracles because at salvation, it says the old things are done away, we become a new creation in Christ. It says that we're dead to sin and Uh, alive to God. It says that we become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus because he made him sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. At the day of salvation, we received our calling, a new identity in Christ and a destiny that cannot be shaken, uh, that all came in that moment. We received the fullness of Christ on the day we were saved. But here's the catch. 
It was in seed form. It was planted within you in seed form because things in the kingdom start small. And a good way I like to think of the salvation experience of grace is that we experience the love of God and then God puts these seeds of great potential within us. And this is amazing. It's an amazing miracle. It says the angels of God rejoice when this takes place because someone becomes a new creation in Christ. Uh, This is This experience of grace actually varies from person to person. We've kind of mechanicalized it, and we, you know, we have, anybody seen the Evangel Cube? You know, you just kind of switch it around, and and like, that's the experience of salvation. And that is an amazing tool that has brought many into an experience of salvation. But the experience of salvation, even I bet if we were to get everyone up here and talk about that on the stage, you would see it varies a lot. Uh, because it's an experience of grace, and God's a master artist with endless creativity. Uh, some people, it's over a process. Sometimes it's a day. Sometimes it was a prayer as a children. Sometimes you're reading a book. It doesn't really matter, but the reality is you get saved, and there's something that takes place, and you have faith that Jesus is the Son of God. You ask him to come and be your personal Lord and Savior, and you get transformed. Uh, oftentimes, just kind of if you were to take a pulse or a survey of how things take place, people that are first-generation Christians will have a much more powerful experience of salvation and also people that have gone deep into like darkness, drugs, addiction, whatever. There's a really, um, it's a powerful dispensation of grace at salvation um, because they need it, if that makes sense. It's the love of God. He knows what we need. He meets us where we're at. Um, I'm referencing here because uh, salvation is amazing miracle, and I wanted to make that very clear tonight, uh, but it's not the goal of Christianity. And some people, we've kind of made, like, our, we've camped our Christianity around this experience, this first experience of grace called salvation. Uh, but the goal of Christianity wasn't to just save us from our sin and put these seeds within us. The goal of Christianity is communion with God. He wants relationship with us in every single way. Uh, and, you know, we're, uh, it says that we've become temples of the living God. You know, there's many verses, right? You familiar with this? A temple was a place uh, where God inhabited Right? And, and I like to think it was a place of communion. It was a place where the abiding presence of God lived. And I, I kind of like the analogy of a garden because I think it's easier relatable for us as humans. Uh, but God uh, wants a garden where he can walk with us hand in hand and talk with us and speak with us and have this place of sacred communion. And uh, we are a garden, and salvation to me is like imagine an overgrown, weeded garden where things have been choked out by this growth that is not good, and the life that was there is no longer, and it's this overgrown patch of dirt and land, and it's, uh, you know, it's a mess. And salvation is when God comes sovereignly into the very core of that garden, and he plants a tree of life. And he clears this place, and he plants this sacred tree, and it's salvation, right? Are you following me here? Okay. Sometimes you look at me funny, so I'm just making sure I understand what funny look means. So what is, that, that's salvation. That's a picture of salvation, right? Philippians 1.6 says, he who begins a good work will be faithful to bring it to completion, Right? Salvation is when God begins a good work because we don't earn salvation. It's a gift to be freely received, right? But salvation, he begins a good work, and then he's faithful to complete the good work. And that completion is sanctification, right? 
Sanctification uh, in Jude, you're in Jude. There's only one chapter. So verse 24 of Jude. This is a verse that I, it's one of my favorite promises in scripture. And I think it really captures what the completion looks like. This is verse 24 of Jude. It says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. (laughs) That's a promise right there. The holy God of heaven, he is able to make you stand before his holy glory, blameless, with great joy. Not fear, not trembling, not not afraid of being punished, blameless. That's the work of sanctification. That's the finished work of sanctification. And I would define sanctification as a consequent work of grace. Sometimes you can have this experience at your salvation. Sometimes you can have it separate. Sometimes you can have it at this point. Like there's, again, God is endlessly creative. So we, it's a personal journey for each one of us. But this is a consequent work of grace that partners with your salvation experience of grace. And sanctification is threefold. I'm going to get theological for you in a second. The first part of sanctification is that you were sanctified. The day that you were saved, you became dead to to sin and alive to God. You became the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That is called positional sanctification. Because you are in Christ, you stand holy. But it is in potential. There's progressive sanctification, which is what I'm going to talk about tonight, which is the journey of progressing into blamelessness, into holiness, into purity. And then there is the glorification, uh, which is a future Sanctification when we will see him face to face. Jude talks about it, and we will be blameless and stand before his holy glory with great joy. So I want to talk about uh, progressive sanctification because uh, positional sanctification is everything about God. He does it. It's a, it's a gift of grace, right? We're not striving for salvation. We're not striving for his favor. We're not striving for his love. He loves you 100% today. He's going to love you 100% when you're in heaven and you look at him blameless with great joy, right? We're working with his love, from his love. We're not working for his love. A lot of people get into legalism around the word sanctification because they're like working to earn more favor. We're not working to earn more favor. We were given it all on the day that we were saved. We're simply cultivating these seeds so that they can grow. To go back to the analogy of the garden, we have a tree in the middle of it now that's cultivated. The work of sanctification is pulling the weeds out of the rest of the garden so that the whole garden is a place of divine communion where the Lord can come and walk and talk and speak with you and there's no more weeds and uh, growth and death and dying and decay. It's life and abundant life, right? So this is sanctification. It is not an act of legalism. It's an act of great grace. It's an act of humility. It's an act of learning to walk in obedience, right? And we've been talking about dependence, living in the voice. This, I'm going to highlight and kind of share some of what it looks like to tend this garden, to cultivate this garden of your heart. Uh, So the definition of sanctification is to set apart for an intended purpose. So in other words, it's to get you operating as you were created to to get you like functioning correctly right and I heard this story uh, years ago that really ministered to me in the season I was in and it was talking about when a refiner is refining gold he puts it into the refiner's fire this is an act of sanctification because they're purifying the gold so that the gold will fulfill its intended purpose right and that refiner puts the gold into the fire until he can see his reflection in the metal he then knows it's purified and it comes out of the fire That, to me, is such a picture of sanctification. It's a beautiful one, but it's also a little scary because it involves the refiner's fire, 
right? Wah, wah, wah. Yeah, I'm going there tonight. Buckle up. I gotcha. You're a captive audience now. All right, so the, the scary part of sanctification being just forward with y'all is that death is involved. Um, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, left, like 30 pages or so from Jude. I'm just going to read a few verses that I think capture uh, kind of the essence of this process. I'm going to read uh, Romans uh, chapter 6, rather, verse 5 through 7, and then I'm going to skip over and read verse 19 as well. So I'll give you one more second, then we'll read. All right, here's 6, 5 through 7. For if we've become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Then if you skip over to verse 19, he's expounding further on the same thought. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. All right, so there's a transference going on here of being a slave to sin and a slave to God, a bond slave to God, which is a choice of love. Um, but death is involved in this process, is the point I wanted to highlight there. We become united with him in the likeness of his death. We become crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who, but Christ who lives within me. We become slaves to God, and he creates a holiness within us. Right? This is a work of his grace, uh, but it's actually a co-laboring work. So we're not striving for perfection. We're actually surrendering to the cross. And that is how sanctification takes place. We're not striving for perfection. We're surrendering to the cross. A.W. Tozer is a book called The Radical Cross, and he really uh, extrapolates on the cross. We think of the cross as something beautiful, and it is because we see it in gold and silver and precious colors all over the world on top of high cathedrals. And we often forget that a cross is one thing and one thing only, and an instrument for death. It was a Roman tool for torture and crucifixion, and that is the central tenet of the Christian faith. We don't like to talk about this. We don't like, we like to wiggle ourselves around, but the reality is that death stands in the middle of this gospel, but it stands right before an abundant resurrection life. And there is uh, death involved in the process of becoming holy, right? And uh, to go back to this garden analogy, uh, everything that's in that garden has to be uprooted. He plants the tree. We know that he's good. We know that he's love. Oftentimes we'll have seasons of where, uh, oftentimes when you get saved, a lot of people say you have a honeymoon season, right? Is anybody familiar with this? You're like on fire for God. Then it's like five, ten years later, sometimes like I lost my passion. Uh, oftentimes I think it's because the cultivation stopped around this experience of salvation. And God's saying, no, now it's time to go the whole garden. I want to be cultivated. And what that requires is you have to get in. Anybody that gardens, I don't, but my mom does. She used to say, come out here, boys, and pick the weeds. They're from the devil. <laughs> <laughs> she had my little nieces at one time, or her little nieces, my little cousins. Literally, they're like, we're just picking the devil out of the garden. And I was like, what are you teaching them? They're like five. But, uh, you know, like anybody that does that, you know these weeds. That was my punishment growing up. We had these big garden beds. Get out there and pick weeds. It's crap, 
right? You know these things are from hell after one day of picking weeds, right? They just like don't get out, then you rip them, the root's still in there, then you get your, your nails all covered in dirt because you're like trying to get in there the whole time, just get that dang root out, right? These weeds are not fun, right? And in the garden of our soul, there's a lot of weeds, there's a lot of junk, and the Lord's sanctification is he starts leading us to these places to start ripping things out. And in this process, there are things that you think are your identity that are not. And it is very painful as that starts to get torn apart. So there is uh, blood and tears. It's a work of blood and tears because you will pour your life and your passion into this process. Sanctification is a work of grace. And it has to be both that, a work of grace. And you're working with the giver of all grace. This uh, is a hard process, and because of that, it's often triggered in people's lives uh, by crisis. Uh, it's very comfortable. It's uncomfortable. It's painful. It's difficult. So oftentimes, tr crisis is what will trigger us into the place that we call the wilderness. Wah, wah, wah. Right? I'm, I'm taking you down tonight, but I'm thinking the Lord will brought you back up. Uh, the wilderness is the place where the Lord starts to deal and he starts taking us out of the comfort zones of salvation and this first work of grace to start exploring the second work of grace uh, or this consequent work of grace, not necessarily second, uh, of sanctification. And the wilderness uh, is something that a lot of people have a very poor understanding of and it's become very negative in our minds. Does anybody relate with that? Would anybody in here, like, kind of get scared if God was like, I'm taking you to the wilderness tomorrow? Raise your hands. It's okay. Yeah. I, I'm hoping to evoke affection in your heart for the wilderness tonight, and I'm hoping to evoke a deep sense of gratitude for what this is and what this tool and this season and this place is that God uses is because the wilderness is a place that's very sacred. Uh, I was in a conversation with a young man recently this year who was in a wilderness and telling me the depths of his struggles. And what came out of my mouth was, please, like, savor this season. I said, days will come when you'll have much to do and work will be busy in life and demands upon you. Says the mighty man of God that the Lord's raising up. And I said, but you need to savor these days. I said, there's many days I wake up wishing that I could go back to the wilderness because of what I found in those days. The simplicity and the silence and the beauty and the intimacy that was cultivated in that place is something that I will never trade for the world. It is the most precious thing that I have. It's where the history with my God was formed and forged and my relationship, which is the most valuable thing any of us will ever have, is our relationship with Jesus, is forged and formed and cultivated in the crucible of this place we call the wilderness. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what the wilderness is tonight, hoping to cast, to open up some language and cast some vision that you can grab onto, because I think some people need, just feel like, you know, to, to look at this and see, because it's different. Um, and I do, before I get into it, I think there's multiple reasons that we can go to the wilderness, even look at the scripture. Sometimes you are in sin, that God pulls you into the wilderness, it's still out of his kindness and his love. Jesus was called to the wilderness, and there was no sin in him, so it was uh, out of the pleasure of God. 
Uh, Moses went to the wilderness once because of his sin. He went again because of his calling. So the wilderness is not a place of punishment. I want to get that out of your minds. Even if you're being disciplined, it is a gift of his love and of his mercy and of his grace. There's not some type of trying to smite you. And in fact, it's quite the opposite. Uh, but there is... Uh, I believe the, the wilderness is, is silent and simple. There's simplicity there. I, I still go, I run up in the foothills often uh, because it's the closest thing that I can find to a physical representation of the wilderness and something in that is very peaceful for me. There's no noise. There's nothing going on. And how I would define the wilderness uh, is that it's when in the Lord's grace he allows your external circumstances to mirror the internal barrenness of your own soul. He lets your circumstances align with these places that are not working and not cultivated in your garden. Things don't work. Like when you get into the wilderness, things will get thwarted sometimes. Things will shut down. Doors will close. Things will get torn apart. Think like sometimes it's a crisis. Sometimes it, it, like there's a lot of different ways. But in the, when you enter into a wilderness, you just know. Like things aren't working like they were supposed to. Right? We're really good at manufacturing facades and the Lord, the wilderness is actually a place of authenticity where he says, these facades, I'm not going to let them work anymore. It's going to become authentic to what's actually on your inside. And you're going to have to sit in the silence and the simplicity and face the pain that's inside. Right? So three big things I want to talk about, and I'm going to weave a lot of scripture stories into you so you can look these up on your own. I would love you to, but I'm just going to reference them for the sake of time. Uh, the first thing that the wilderness has for us uh, is trouble. <laughs> That's, yeah, okay, I think it's kind of funny. I'm just like dropping, it's like, how bad can this get, man? It's just getting worse and worse. It's, it's going to go somewhere. 1 Kings 17, 18, 19 is where I'm taking this from. Uh, Elijah was a young man, a young prophet, and the Lord, he's known as Elijah the Tishbite. He comes before the king, prophesies, and says, the rain's not going to rain except at my word. And it says, immediately the spirit impelled him to go and to hide himself in the Kareth ravine. And that word Kareth, uh, it means a cutting, right? And it means uh, it's a troubling in a sense. And uh, he sends the young prophet into this ravine and says, I'm going to feed you. There's a water brook, and I'm going to bring the ravens to feed you. And at this point, uh, you'd have to read the whole story, but uh, at this point later, it's, it's revealed that uh, the king literally sent people to all the surrounding nations and throughout all of Israel looking for this young prophet because he was known as the troubler of Israel. And he is sitting in a ravine, which is uh, kind of a scary, like anybody stayed the, at a house by yourself before and certain things start creaking, you know? Did you ever have an entire army looking for you when you were alone at that house at night? I'd imagine not. And uh, <laughs> if you did, you can talk to me after service. They're still looking for you. I don't want to get in trouble. So... Uh, but I, I like to propose that this was a place of having to sit with his fears. Uh, later in Elijah's life, he has a moment of vulnerability where he is uh, scared to death that he's going to be killed by Jezebel. Uh, because he, he says, by tomorrow, this time, I'm going to kill you. And he literally runs to the wilderness after all these miracles happen. And he wants to die. Um, because, and he runs in fear. And so I would like to propose, like, 
again, sanctification is a journey, uh, but the Lord wants to deal with our fear. And he literally leads Elijah to this Kareth ravine where he has to sit in isolation with his fear. And he has to sit, and we don't know how for how long, with knowing that an army is looking to take his life. And he has to sit in the wilderness by himself and face his fears. And that Kareth is a cutting because it's painful, but he's cutting the fear out, right? There's like something surgical taking place. And uh, he sits there in this place of dependence uh, and has to sit in, you know, probably a, a dark place, literally, physically, uh, things aren't working. I thought when you said go talk to the king and prophesy, it was going to be like promotion, right? No, you're in a ravine now, sitting with this fear. What are you going to do? And I, you know, we don't know what happened, so I'm not going to go too deep into that. Cause scripture is silent there, uh, but I do know that he comes out of the Kareth ravine. He goes to the land of Sidon finds a widow that provides for him. The widow's son dies. A month later, he goes up and lays upon the child, and the child is resurrected from the dead. And the woman says, now truly I know the word in your mouth is from God. And she refers to him as Elijah, the man of God. He, something got cut away that led to the first story in the entire scriptures of resurrection life, raising someone from the dead. There's something that takes place in the wilderness, in the trouble, in the cutting, that proceeds, that leads to like this resurrection life, right? Okay, so there's trouble. Oftentimes we'll find ourselves in trouble, and oftentimes we'll find that we have to sit with our fear, that we have to sit with the things that are very uncomfortable and let like the pruning scissors come and cut and cut and cut. And it proceeds a release of resurrection power. Second thing that we find in the scriptures in the wilderness is temptation. Jesus is given, impelled again by the Spirit into the wilderness, and he's tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, interesting temptations that take place. We have uh, three of them. It says he's tempted So when he finished all these temptations. So there may have been more, but there's three that are highlighted. Each one of them, I'm not going to detail them, but I'm going to detail that they each uh, have a similarity in that they're trying to get Jesus to act in independence, Right? Uh, we want to be slaves to God. That results in our sanctification. Jesus came and walked as a man dependent upon God to demonstrate what a life of holiness looks like. You do not act where the Father is not acting. If you're the Son of God, prove it and turn this stone into bread. Right? Like, do something. Right? If you're the Son of God, jump off the thing so the angels will hold you so a foot won't strike your stone. And the last one, which, you know, who knows if that's the greatest one, is a temptation of power. Uh, I'll give you all the nations and the kingdoms of the world if you will worship me. Interesting thing about this is who's the name that every knee bows to and every tongue confesses as Lord? Jesus. He is the possessor of all the nations and all the kingdoms of the, of the world. He was saying, I'll give you all those things without the cross. Right? Like he's giving him an easy way. He's saying, I'll give you power without uh, without." cost without sacrifice without death right and Jesus is walking this journey not as God God is not being tempted it actually says in the scriptures God can't be tempted Jesus is walking as a man being tempted for our sakes he's tempted with power and uh, Jesus obviously passes these tests he stays in dependence upon the father he quotes scripture back to the enemy and he uh, walks out of the wilderness it says in the power of the spirit and he begins to perform miracles which were not recorded before that time. There's something that takes place in the temptation. 
that prepares you for a release of resurrection power. Uh, I want to make these things kind of real because uh, sometimes I think it's easy to look at the Bible and be like, oh, that's great for Elijah. That's great for Jesus. Like, what does that look like today? Um, there was a season in my life uh, when I was um, 17 years old, the Lord probably began transitioning me into a wilderness. I didn't have words or language for that, uh, and it really took off about 18. I kind of felt the, the, the tremors taking place. And when I was 18 years old, uh, it was around mid-August of 2008, uh, I entered into a very uh, a wilderness season. And it was a very, very uncomfortable, uh, painful a dark season of my life. I don't believe that the wilderness needs to be dark um, or in any ways like that, but it was for me uh, because of a number of instances and a number of things in my life that were not lining up uh, with the holiness of God, and it was just a very troubled season. It was a season of great temptation. Um, and that lasted probably five years of my life. Uh, but I remember there was about a year and a half into it, I moved. I was in Southern California going to school next to the ocean. And next to the, um, where I went was uh, these cliffs that were these big ravines. And you could really get lost in them. And I had no idea what I was doing at the time. I was simply trying to find expression for what was going on inside of me. And I would find myself there often in these ravines, literally weeping and wailing to God what are you doing? Like, I remember it was the only place that I could go where I could find peace because the ocean would crash so loud at night that no one could hear me no matter how much I screamed because I was in the cutting. I was in the place of sitting with my fears. In fact, I was watching most of my fears materialize in front of my face, and I just was in this place of being broken and cutting, and things were getting ripped out of my life that I thought were me, and I thought I was dying. And I didn't know what was going on at the time. Again, I didn't have wisdom. I didn't have understanding. I didn't have any. I didn't even... I was a kid. I didn't read the Bible enough. You know, I'm like, gosh, why didn't I read it more? But I'm in this place of being broken. I was in the Kareth Ravine. Literally, there was days where I dug myself into the sides of it where nobody could see me crying out, weeping, wailing. What is going on in me? Why is all this cutting? Why is this this tearing inside of me? This is, this is me. Why is this being taken? Why is this being ripped? What is happening to my life? In this season, I was seeking God. I wasn't living in sin. I was literally seeking him. I was praying for him. I was doing anything I could to try to find God, to try to find grace. And in the same season, I remember, I'll never forget it the rest of my life. I've never shared this publicly, and I've actually been really struggling whether I will or not because it's something that is uh, very, it's very uncomfortable, and it was a very, very um, broken place and a place that I didn't have understanding. I had no theology of what was for happening. But I, I remember a day, it was the first few days of November, of 2009. So I'd been in a wilderness for well over a year at this point, wrestling, weeping, wailing, in the trouble, in the cutting, saying, what is going on? And in this place, battling temptations all around me. But I'll never forget this day. I was in a very low, vulnerable place. And this voice came to me, not audibly, but it was all consuming and it grabbed my attention. And I knew it was the only time in my whole life I could say this. I knew it was the voice of the enemy. And all it, all it said was, worship me, and I'll give you anything you want now. And the reason I don't share this is because something inside me was drawn to that voice. And I sat there going, what is happening? It was like that internal war within me. 
And I'll never forget it. It's probably a defining moment of my life, and I didn't even realize it for years because I never thought about it because it freaked me out. And all I did is I grabbed my journal. I literally started crying, and all I started writing was, crucify me. There's something in me that needs to go. There's something in me that's not right. There's something in me that is not of you and not of your spirit, and I knew it. It was like, what was that? And I literally started, like, crying out to God. I have months of journals after that point where I was literally crying out for the cross. That was the only language that I could find, that whatever that seed within me, that tree within me, that salvation that I had as a five-year-old boy with my mother when I said, Lord, I want you to be my Savior, and I want you to come into my heart something inside me was crying out and it was crying out for one thing and it was a cross and instead of getting out of the pain that took me into three more years of cutting and trouble and temptation and pain and ripping and uprooting but something began to happen in that place and transformation began to shift I know this is heavy but I want you to stay with me because I'm sharing this all for a purpose In the wilderness, there's trouble. In the wilderness, there's temptation. But above all these things, the wilderness is a place of intimacy. We're so afraid that God's going to punish us. We're so afraid that when we come face to face with the weeds and the brokenness and the sin, that God's going to cast us out, that he's going to despise us, that he's going to shame us in our shame. That is not the case. A Gomer was a prostitute who got saved and married a prophet, and then she went back into her prostitution. She was in the vileness of sin. I have them up here. I don't even use them. Jeez. I know. It's like a bad, bad habit. Pray for me. She was a prostitute, went back into the prostitution. She was at the lowest point of her life, I'd imagine, living in blatant sin, had cheated on her husband, left her kids. You can read into the story. It's very painful. And then the Lord begins speaking and saying, this is what my people have done to me. My people that I chose and called by my name. My people, my church that I put these seeds of calling and destiny and identity and the fullness of my son that I bled for have gone back to their prostitution. And the Lord speaks, says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her her vineyards from there, and the valley of Accor is a door of hope. And she will sing to me there, as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. Then you will call me Ishi, husband, and will no longer call me Bailey, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. There's trouble, there's temptation. But there's also the face of God waiting to speak into the silence and the simplicity and reveal his great love for you. And when he uproots, he also plants. And when he cuts, he also mends. And when he allows death to take place, he causes resurrection. 
So many of us want to see resurrection life. We were born to see resurrection power flow through us. Resurrection power flows through dead things. If the seed doesn't die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. If your salvation experience, if that seed that was put inside of you doesn't multiply into the whole garden of your life, that's not what he paid for. That's not the fullness. There's more. Peter was a man that loved Jesus. He was the first disciple. He was the first to confess that he was the son of God. And yet in the grace of God, the Lord allowed him to come to the place of the wilderness, of the fear, of the discrepancies, of the division of his heart and his affections. And he denied Jesus, not because he didn't love him, but because he was afraid. And we're fools if we think that the fear within our lives will not cause us to deny him, just like Peter did. Doesn't matter how much you love him. If there's fear in your heart, it's causing a division that's not sanctification, that's not holiness, that's not fullness. And he lets Peter fall and face his pain and he goes away and he weeps and he wails in the cutting place and the isolated place. But in his redeeming love, he comes to him and three times he denied him. And then the Lord that he denied came back and looked him in the eyes. Peter, do you love me? I don't think we can even estimate the intimacy of that moment. Do you love me? Do you love me? He's redeeming. He's mending. He's healing. He's resurrecting. Perhaps my favorite story of the wilderness is Jacob. In the Old Testament, who is now Israel, his name meant the deceiver. He deceived Esau as a young man. He went in, stole his birthright, stole his blessing. His name meant the deceiver. And so he ran to his uncle's house named Laban, tried to run from fear of facing what he did. He never wanted to see his brother. And he creates an estate and a wealth and a family. And he slaves for 14 years to get his two wives, right? Kind of crazy story. One day he comes and God's calling him back and he has to go and leave. And as he leaves, he knows that he's going to have to face his brother. But I don't think his brother was what he was most afraid of. What he was most afraid of was facing himself. And they say Esau's coming. He gets afraid. He sends his livestock. He sends his servants. He sends his family ahead of him across the river. And it says he camps that night alone. And there's something about the grace of God that he will always bring us back to that place where the things and the family and the possessions and the stuff just doesn't cut it anymore. You have to come where it's you and God alone. And it says Jacob wrestles with God that whole night. But This is the interesting thing. What he's wrestling with God with, he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. He's dealing with the same insecurity and stuff he was dealing with as a young man because he already tried to deceive and get the blessing, but it wasn't real yet, right? He, he already had the blessing. He had the birthright. He had these things, but he got it through deception. And in this place, he's now left as a man with a family and a posterity. He's still dealing with places of the garden that need to be uprooted, and he's wrestling with God saying, I want you to bless me for real. And he wrestles 
And there is a wrestling that takes place. But I think sometimes we think of that as a violent moment. But I like to think that that is like, like God's not like going to lose a wrestling match, you know? It's like a father and a son, a little boy and a dad wrestling. And God blesses him. And he gets a, touches him on the sinew of his thigh. And he begins to walk with a limp. And the amazing thing, I actually want to close tonight by talking about the limp, because this is kind of the point of the whole message. Song of Solomon 8 says, uh, who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? There's a mark of sanctification, and it's a limp, and it's a lean, and it signifies a broken will. A broken will. It signifies that the wildness has been cultivated and it's now under the lordship of Jesus, all of me. It's like a wild horse that once it's broken, it doesn't go back to wildness. There is a permanent something that takes place inside of a heart. And this is a work of grace called sanctification. And Jacob's whole identity changed around the limp. So no longer is he called Jacob the deceiver. He's called Israel, he who wrestles with God and prevails. And he walked with a limp through all his days. The branding mark of sanctification is a limp, is a lean. It's a broken will. And it's so precious and so valuable to God. In the eyes of the world, they say a limp is weakness. In heaven, they look upon it, and it's a mark of great authority. When the Lord... The Lord wants to entrust you, right? Like there's two big questions. One is, do you trust God? The second is, does he trust you? God trusts men and women that walk with a limp, that live their lives in a lean, that have a broken will under his mighty hand. The fire of God, the refiner's fire, is what purifies the metal. And in the Bible, the word transformation is actually comes from the, the Greek word is what we get like metamorphosis from. And if anybody knows what happens with metamorphosis, there is a death and a life, like a caterpillar. It goes into a cocoon, into the darkness, into the wilderness, into the cutting and the temptation and the silence and the simplicity, and it dies. And when that cocoon opens, it's a new creation. That's metamorphosis. That is what the fire of God does. We, in charismatic culture, it's like, we want the fire, right? Give us the fire. What you're asking for is the sanctifying grace of God. God wants to use you. The fire is also what heals, right? People say, I felt the fire of God through you when you prayed for me. Elijah was in the cutting, and then the resurrection flowed. Jesus was in the testing, then the resurrection flew. Peter was in the weeping and the agonizing. Then the resurrection power flew, right? F flew, flew, whatever, flowed through him. You know what I'm talking about. But <laughs> you see the correlation? Death to life, death to life. You die to live. And it's not striving, it's surrender to the cross. I don't think sanctification is an experience I believe you can have sanctifying experiences where something amazing happens, but I'm not trying to advocate an experience tonight or any night. I'm trying to advocate a posture of the heart, which is a limp, which is a life of walking. It's a posture, right? It's a, it's a method of living that's different from the old. And a lot of people 
are in the wilderness, but they don't get the limp because they don't ever have the courage to send the family and the things and the wealth and the possessions and my worldly goods ahead and camp that night alone with God. And so Israel walked for 40 years around the same mountain. And they never walked through the promised land. They never got there because they just were content. No, I'm just going to stay in my comfort zone. I'm not going to yield to the grace. I'm not going to go to that place. That's scary. That's hard. I don't want the fire. I'm not going to ask for the cross. I don't want to pick it up. I don't want to die. I'm happy in this halfway. And halfway Christianity isn't working. Halfway Christianity isn't what he paid for. Halfway Christianity isn't what the blood of Jesus demands. Right? It's the full thing. And so my heart, my prayer is that we will be a people that say, I want the cross. Crucify me in every place. I will boast in the cross. Paul's like to me to to live as Christ and to die as gain. I don't care. My life is crucified with Christ. And it's not I who live. It's him who live. That's That's the DNA of Christianity. That's what you were born to be. And if God just saying, just get courage. If the church will just get courage and say, crucify me, God. Any place, every place. I want to be whole resurrection power that's the only thing that will come what like I dare you you know like I dare you and so we're not striving for this we're not working for this this is not moral perfectionism this is simply following the lordship of Jesus to the places that are wild and uncultivated and doing the work with him and he will make us holy so that we will stand before him in his holy glory blameless and with great joy that's the work of sanctification amen Praise you, Lord. So uh, I'm going to close in prayer, and then uh, so you can stand, and I just want to pray for us, and then we'll have a ministry team, and we'll close and dismiss y'all. So Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the sanctifier and the baptizer with fire. And I ask, Lord, that tonight you will further move us in this journey of holiness. I pray, God, for a great work of grace in the hearts of your people tonight. I pray that we will be a people that walk with a limp, God, that we will be a people that walk with a lean, that we will be a people, God, that are so submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, that we are holy like you are holy, that we're pure like you're pure, God. I pray for people that are in the places of being cut, God, the places of pruning, the places of tempting, the places of difficulty, God, and I pray that that you will give them eyes not to focus on the trouble, but to focus on your face, Lord, and to find that intimacy. I pray for people that are in struggles with sin tonight, God. I pray that you will break chains tonight, God, that the, 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 that the chains and the, the places where they've been slave to sin, God, and impurity and unrighteousness, I pray that it will break tonight, God. We are not striving for your perfection, God. We're yielding to your cross. And so we lift your cross up tonight. We ask that the power of your cross will come and that you will touch us, that you will brand us, that you will mark us with your holiness, God, that you will set us free, that you will move us, God, out of death and into life, God. We thank you. We thank you that you are able, and not only able, but you are willing to set captives free and so tonight God I pray that any captives you set free and I pray God for people that are walking deeply with you that you take us deeper God that you take us 
further and that you make us holy like you're holy, God. We yield our hearts to you. We yield our lives to you. And we bless your holy name. We pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus.